Welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Dear Dead People. My name is Yvonne Liu. And I'm Emily Lohman. And today we are joined by Aya Elwanis and Fatima Nadim, who are members of the organization Girls for Politics. Aya is a social media coordinator and Fatima is a political writer. In this episode, we will be speaking about the forgotten pharaoh Hatshepsut, who reigned the Egyptian kingdom from 1443 BC until 1458 BC. Being one of the first women in power, she inspired future generations to seek higher positions. We hope you enjoy! Cue the intro music! So, we are going to be talking about women in power in this episode, and we're still in ancient Egypt, um, and this time we're going to be talking about uh, Hatsaput, which was a pharaoh, which was, um, she was a pharaoh from ancient Egypt. Um, most of the time when you think of pharaohs, you think of men, and she was one of the most, the first prominent women in power in all of history, actually. Yeah. Yep. So most um, Egyptian sculptures um, sort of have a very manly, broad figure. Maybe you envision a snake hair with those crown thingies. You know, um, not many um, of the visuals you get, you would think were sort of feminine unless you're thinking about Cleopatra she was and still is very prominent but there were a lot of um different female pharaohs in ancient times so the sort of thinking of pharaohs as all male except for Cleopatra is really um inaccurate right I I definitely agree like I, I never um really knew about uh, Hatsput as a pharaoh until we started discussing this specific topic. I only really thought that Cleopatra was a prominent female um, figure in ancient Egypt. And so I feel like it's a very stereotypical mistake for people to be making. And I think it should be more incorporated into different history curriculums so people are more informed about it. Because I do feel like it'll it history does affect um, modern day events as well. So let's talk about um, how someone becomes a pharaoh. So um, the pharaoh is the son conceived by the wife of the current pharaoh, who then is the heir. But if the wife does not give birth to a son, the the son of the pharaoh's second wife, or someone in the pharaoh's harem will be selected as the heir. So it's very much male selection on um, being a pharaoh. Uh, Hatshepsut, when she became a pharaoh, it was very complicated. Upon passing away, Hatshepsut mother and her, um, and pharaoh, let's see if I can pronounce this, but Mose's wife did not bear a son. And, and so his second wife became the pharaoh. Um, Hatshepsut married uh, that most is second, and incest was common back then and custom. They wanted to keep the bloodline relatively pure. So when he died, Hatshepsut did not bear a son either, so the heir was passed down to 
um, Thutmose the third, the son of Thutmose the second, second's wife. And because he was too young to rule, had to put serve as a placeholder. Um, that's normally how women got to power, especially in ancient times, was the pharaoh who was assigned, um, who was the next heir, was almost always too young to rule. And so the um, either a different um, male figure who would, like, maybe an advisor would take over, or it was the female mother figure who would take over sort of rule until the um, heir came of age. Because most of the time, like, when we're talking about, we're not talking about, oh, they were 18 years old and so they weren't an adult yet. We're talking, like, no, they were three years old and they're every, all the other males in the bloodline had passed away. Which is kind of crazy. But, yeah, so that's basically what it was. A pharaoh might have started ruling at 13 years old because he may have just been educated enough on, like, the processes Mm -hmm. um in the government so pharaohs were generally extremely young and that's why um womenly figures were able to take over because if their son or nephew or whoever or son and nephew which is weird <laughs> if they're if maybe they were just born they would have quite a few years to rule. Right. And we see that happen a lot throughout history. A lot of um, men often have powerful women behind them, pulling a little bit of the strings because um, they're not, I'm not saying they're not capable. It's just sometimes it's, it's better to have um, a more diverse background and <laughs> different considerations and um yeah i'm just gonna like <laughs> so how about this reign of power um she was unlike other pharaohs in that she would hire um skilled workers for powerful positions instead of using nepotism. And um, she made a bunch of public buildings and basically took care of the people. And so the people really liked her because she showed how much she cared for them and um, how she was willing to be a strong, loyal ruler. And so in turn, the citizens then became loyal to her because she could show that she was a good ruler and could keep the country going well. And I'm I'm sure that um, along with like their, I'm sure that back then ancient Egypt probably had um, respect more towards male leaders rather than female leaders. And so when she started showing that power, that initiative, they were a little bit stunned by that. And I think the main reason for her unique way of governing was probably to make sure that her citizens felt as if she was more than capable of the job. Right. And um, during that time, Hatsupit actually transformed herself to gain the loyalty of her citizens. She actually changed her name to a more um, 
male masculine name uh, and she wanted to be viewed as a man. She even created like a whole story of her birth that would kind of make her a demi-goddess, which is a very interesting thing um, when we're looking how that relates to modern day politics. Women need to encompass a different personality in order to get ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the story of her birth being changed into a goddess or a demigoddess sort of um, origin also would have fed into the um, divine right to rule. And so um, I think overall it was a very good strategy of hers to make more masculine and to sort of give herself divine right. So I think all of those together probably just helped the public accept her and her to be a good leader. And it's uh, it's interesting because when we were talking earlier that she took care of the people and she created, gave them public buildings and really kind of nurtured them. Um, you don't typically think of caring and everything, all those personality traits to be associated with high authoritative figures. Usually, again, they're more um, stern, cold, confidence, everything that historically has been male. And I think that comes with probably her portraying her femininity in some sort of way mm-hmm. through that caring and nurturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's sort of related to how um, most children will rely on their mothers more than their fathers because while their fathers um, most of the time just provide financially and then sort of check out the rest of the time, mothers are there 100% constantly providing the warmth and the care and the um, actual um, love that a parent-child relationship would have. And so I think it was the different dynamics were also probably shocking, but comforting to people because it would be more of a parental mother son sort of thing. Yeah, definitely more involved. Mm -hmm. At the end of Hatsukut's reign, um, Thutmose III and Hatsukut had a perfect mother-son bond um, and she educated him made sure he would be a great ruler and then she passed away in 1458 BC into which her um, her son ruled Egypt successfully after that so she really just paved the way for the next generation yeah um, so something that's interesting though is even though um, because technically, Hephaestus was the stepmother of Thutmose III. Mm-hmm. And so um, when he took over, he destroyed all the living memory of her. And we don't know why, but it seems weird to me considering that accounts before then said that they had a healthy bond. And so there doesn't 
the only motivation that I personally can think of that has no um, political basis is just that I guess technically he was supposed to have been the pharaoh for the entire time that she was. And so it would have been a conflicting timeline to have her ruling for however long she did of his reign. But I, it's just interesting to me that um, he would try to erase everything that she had done as a leader. Yeah. And he also, when she died, he, he's like put out the rumor that she was sent to eternal hell. So basically, I don't know what flipped, honestly, because from what archaeologists have seen and discovered the other years was that they had like this great relationship. And then after she died and he became Pharaoh, it just sort of flipped. And I, and I do agree. I think it's because she was a woman. Um, and that he felt afterwards that maybe it would be better if no one knew that that's who was responsible for all these different things. All right, so we're going to play a game show with our guests. First up, we're going to name some, um, because we're talking about women in power and feminism and all that, we're going to be talking to you about some policies in America, and you're going to say whether or not they were implemented by men or women. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So... The California Desert Conservation and Recreation Act protected more than 375,000 acres of wilderness, expand the desert national parks by almost 40,000 acres, and designated 200,000 acres of off-highway vehicle areas for um, wild scenic rivers. Men or women? I'm guessing women. Correct. The woman that implemented this was named Diane Feinstein. Um, she did a lot of great stuff. I think she was recently in the news as well. Um, she worked, she was in the Senate. She worked with um, Richard Byrd to do a major cybersecurity bill recently that promotes the information of sharing between companies and companies in the government. Um, and she also secured provisions for the military in the annual defense authorization bill. She has had a very long career in politics. All right. Okay. So our second. Do you want to say something? Um, Our second person was the director of the Peace Corps and established the first programs in the Baltic nations and the new independent states of the former Soviet Union. Men or women? A man. It's actually a woman. Her name is Elaine Chow. (laughs) She was the first Chinese-American in U.S. history to be appointed to the president's cabinet under Bush. Um, She was in the Department of Labor and then the Department of Transportation, and she's done a lot as well. Um, 
For the first time in more than 40 years, she led the department in updating the labor union financial disclosure under the Landrum Griffin Act of 1959 and created more extensive disclosure requirements for union-sponsored pension plans. So she's definitely a people person. Person for the people. Okay. This next one. All right. So she, um, this person, worked with the Internal Security Act of 1950. She opposed the American involvement in the Vietnam War and the expansion <laughs> development. Oh wait, it's a cheat. Dang it. Okay. She's <laughs> <think> a woman. Good <laughs> Okay. Well, her name was Shirley Chisholm. Um, yeah, so it was a woman. She was the first black congresswoman, um, and she did seven terms in Congress. So she is pretty amazing. She um, called for better treatment of Haitian refugees, created a special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children. Um, was on the Veterans Affairs Committee, Education and Labor Committee, and she was the founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus in 1969. Yeah, she's done a lot. Um, the next person, person not of any gender, uh, was appointed to the chair of the committee overseeing the Industrial Home for Girls and sat on the committees of Agriculture, Insurance, and Northern State normal school, um, promoted public health, fighting against alcoholism and tuberculosis. Man or woman? Woman. Woman. Correct. Uh, her name is Cora Bell Renner Anderson. <laughs> she ran for the Michigan House of Representatives and won, and she was the first woman elected in that house and the first Native American woman to serve in a state legislator. She also championed for Native American rights. Okay, last person. Coordinated a joint initiative with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to help end veteran homelessness. Man or woman? Man. So woman again. <laughs> <laughs> Her name is Tammy Duckworth. Um, she worked with homelessness, Native American veterans, um, and the Office of Online Communications to improve the Veterans Association accessibility. Um, she was an Iraq War veteran, a Purple Heart recipient, and the former Assistant Secretary to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. So she's done a lot for veterans. All right, so I'm gonna also read some surprising statistics that I found on the gender gap, in uh, uh, the gender pay gap. Um, so this was published by the World Economic Forum for 2020, so very official. So according to them, so far only 25% of the political empowerment class has been 
closed on the sub-index, and no country has fully closed the gap yet. So basically, the representation of the population's gender, so women to male, has not been fully closed yet in representative government ever in any country. Iceland is the only one that has been closest with approximately 70% of its gap closed, which says a lot. <laughs> what do you guys think about that? I mean, I feel like it'll vary from region to region just because of cultures, politics, all of that, traditions, religions. And based on what they practice in that region, I'm sure it'll vary. Specifically, Middle East, Africa. Yeah. I think also a lot of people think that it's a myth because women um, have to take maternity leave. So they think that that accounts for all of it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. And it's harder to see in a um, standardized pay job where there's not a lot of discretion. So if you are in retail or fast food, those are normally standardized pay where you know um, exactly what you'll get. But if you work in an office or if you work um, in the STEM field, there is huge disparities in what men and women get paid for the same job. And in fact, um, many times, especially in the STEM field, men who work lower jobs. So for instance, if there's a uh, man in an internship, in a paid internship, and a woman as the head lab specialist, the woman will be paid less than the intern. And that happens quite often. And it's not kind of like, oh, two cents less. No, it's a couple dollars less. And so I think because it makes most people uncomfortable to recognize the fact that it still exists, they just want to pretend like it doesn't. And they want to say, oh, no, it doesn't because I've never had a job like that. Or, oh, no, it doesn't because nobody has ever told me that they get paid less than I do for the same job. And so I just, it is a real issue and it's extremely prevalent and it's extremely unfair. And so to, to, for, to have people to shrug it off and to act like it doesn't exist or that someone's exaggerating or something is just extremely frustrating, especially when women do work extremely hard and we are very capable of producing excellent things and to not be recognized or treated equally for our work is um, bad, to say the least. Right. And it's, it's interesting to see how these kind of trends that um, um, sort of paint women as lesser than have carried through history for so long. And they're shifting in ways, but they're not completely getting... Um, abolish no matter what system you're in no matter what country you're in they're always going to be there and they'll just shift in how much um recognition they get i think the wage gap is definitely a lot because in, a, in america we don't like to talk about salary and money and everything like that 
So a lot of it could be solved with a lot more education on what you're supposed to be making versus and then having that open communication with um, your employer and your peers about money in order to, you know, have a better say in what you deserve, especially if you're not getting what you need. And actually in STEM fields, I have an example, anesthesiologists, which are the people that um, distribute anesthesia whenever a patient is under, um, under when they're performing surgery. Men make 355,000 per year, while women make on average 296,000 per year, which is a very large gap. Um, and on average, the, by dollar, that would be a woman makes 83 cents for every dollar that a man is making in that field. And I, I definitely agree with you when you say that people, students should be taught um, how much they should be making because it systemizes that injustice from a very early age. And I, I think it's, um, it's about time that changed. I doubt that change is going to happen anytime soon, but pushing for it is better than not doing anything at all. Yeah. What country do you think has the largest gender wage gap? You could our country. Um, I'd say Saudi Arabia. Okay, Emily. Let me pick from somewhere else because I was also going to say that. Um, <laughs> uh, my second guess would be I um, I don't know. I would think. I have a feeling it's somewhere unexpected. It is. It's very unexpected. I don't know. I honestly, I feel like I could just pick a random part of the world and be like, oh yeah, that could be it. So. <laughs> pick, pick, just, just pick one. Um. <laughs> I'm going to say America. Okay, so you guys are both. <laughs> okay. It's South Korea. Yes. Um, really? Uh, yeah, really. Um, although, in countries like Saudi Arabia, I don't think women have a large enough workforce to be completely, like, I think we're looking more at, like, first world countries or more developed countries. Um, I don't think they have a strong enough presence in any workforce industry yet in the country in order to be documented as, you know, there's a wage gap and everything. There probably is, probably a substantial amount. But um, when we're talking about first world countries, it's South Korea. They have 
the average woman earns about 65.4% of what a man does there. And that is a 34% wage gap, which is huge. <laughs> so if someone is earning 32,000 a year, um, if the woman is earning 32,000 a year, then the man is doing uh, 50,000 per year. That wow. is nice. <laughs> Surprisingly, a lot of Asian countries follow suit. So we have Japan on there as well. And then also Latvia, Estonia, and Chile follow um, in the largest gender wage gap. I think culturally, um, in Asian, because I'm Asian, um, a lot of the men like to deal with money. They have a strong presence in the workforce, and women are supposed to be seen as timid a bit and more reserved. And actually, people praise you on that. Oh, she's so quiet. She's so nice. You know, she's so reserved. Um, and that's an attractive quality. So when we're looking at these countries, I don't think a part a part of the gender wage gap is because the women are um, putting that place and they're not speaking up for you know a, a larger salary. So that statistic is really crazy. Yeah. Um. Do you guys think that it will get better soon? Hopefully. Hopefully. I know yeah. I would throw a fit. <laughs> I found out that because I want to go into a STEM field, I want to work um, as an astrophysicist in an observatory. And um, if I found out that some intern was making three dollars $3 more than I was and I was um, an established lab specialist, I would throw a fit. Like, as you should. <laughs> I wouldn't. I am not the type of person to be timid and be like, "Oh no, I won't say anything." Oh no, no, I no, I'm gonna throw hands because. Mm. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, like that's the hope that things change. But like realistically, I I honestly don't think anything's gonna change anytime soon. What do you guys think about feminism in general? Because we're all women. We've all heard about feminism, and we've all heard about the backlash on feminism. What do you guys think as a whole about the topic? Um, I personally think feminism is a very powerful movement, and it's very empowering as well. Um, but there are some instances where I feel like it's it's over preached in topics that aren't really relevant. Um, I don't have any examples that come off of like the top of my head, but that's that's just how I feel about it. Yeah, 
I think that um, feminism in its core values is extremely important because it's not just about um, creating equality for women and having equity along the way, but it's also about removing the societal um, standards that put us where we are right now. And part of those um, societal standards are not only restricting on women, but also restricting on men. Like men have this sort of image that they have to fulfill to be seen as manly or whatever. And it's extremely toxic and it's harmful for them as well because that's what leads to um, more men dying prematurely because they don't want to go see the doctor because they feel like it's, um, it's not a manly thing to go get a health checkup. Or men having increased cases of ADHD and autism. And that could be due to lack of diagnosing women. Um, but there are all kinds of different factors and men have higher um, rates of depression and suicide because there's often no um, outward expression of their feelings and they're often told to just keep it all inside and bottle it up and they don't have friends who they can go to or um, they're often touch starved in their friend groups because they feel like it'll be gay to like hug their friend and so that sort of the toxic masculinity is not only does it oppress women but it oppresses men as well and so I think that part of feminism is really, really super important in um, forwarding the progress of everyone in society. It's just you have to be careful because sometimes um, extreme feminism can turn into misandry and exactly. then starting to hate men for nothing other than being men and um, not recognizing the societal pressures put on men as well as women is where the issue comes in because um, most of the issues in that are that come to be prevalent in society go both ways where it's not just oh men did this because of because they're men it's most likely that they've had some sort of pressure put on them to behave the way that they do and i i feel like that pressure um varies from place to place in the world i know for sure living in a middle eastern country um in the uae gender roles are very very prominent and if you don't fulfill your gender role you will get hate and i feel like that plays a very big role in what you just said So, touching on what Emily was talking about, um, since the rise of feminism, there has been all these people against it, and even women against it, which baffles me a little bit. Um, but it has also come up with the rise of men's rights. That um, people have been arguing for them, it's actually a thing in that the rise of feminism and things such as the movement have actually been oppressing men. What do you guys think of that? It's kind of a ridiculous idea because men have been 
in power for so long and to even suggest that <laughs> just because women are starting to speak out, we are oppressing them. Right. I think it's got to do, um, I think it's very similar to the Black Lives Matter movement where white people feel um, oppressed because people of color are trying to gain equality. It's not that anybody's being oppressed. It's that now you're having to give up your life of privilege and it makes you uncomfortable. So nobody is saying pay men less. Nobody is saying like, in fact, everybody's saying the opposite, like just stop forcing men into what you think they should be. Like, nobody's saying to oppress men and in no way is giving women equality oppressing a man. It's just that they're no longer going to have that advantage. They're no longer going to be picked first for a job or paid more or, you know, have any sort of um, privilege in society. And I think that scares people who've had privilege their entire lives and don't know what it's like to be without it, you know? And it's definitely an, an ego issue, part of it, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Moving on, um, feminism has definitely been the minority in a in an environment where men have a larger, more dominant voice. But even within that, um, a lot of times people of uh, different sexualities or people of color have often felt not representative in feminism as well. What do you guys think about that? I think that feminism is a movement largely initiated, not initiated, um, largely spoken on by white women. Right. And so most of the time, you know how it's like the people who are loudest is what comes across. I think that the loudest people are cis white women who use feminism as an excuse to hate men. And that leaves no room for any inclusion of queer people or of people of color because it's hate-based. They're shouting because they have hate in their hearts not because they love everyone and want everyone to have um, an equal standing in society, but because they hate a certain group of people and just want to be angry. So um, I definitely see where that comes in, in that um, the loudest people are the ones who don't want to include anyone else in their mission. And so, um, anybody else will feel excluded from the conversation. Like speaking from a, a personal point of view, um, where I live right now, 
feminism isn't a very large movement um, surrounding us right now. It's, it's mainly just what we see on social media. Sometimes on Western television, we'll see some feminism, but nothing very prominent. And so it'll also give you the idea that the movement as a whole is definitely more Western-based rather than um, practiced widely all around the globe. And I think that also has to do with what culture and religion is being practiced in the area. And I think um, I think religion, to be honest, should be left out of it. But culturally, um, culturally, it, it has to change. Feminism in some kind of form should be practiced everywhere just for the equality, not for the hate um, that uh, Emily was talking about. But um, it would be nice seeing more of it over here, to be honest. I have definitely seen a lot of instances where people question um, the lifestyle choices of women um, in the Middle East because it's different from what they feel is right, the right way to live as a woman, because, you know, obviously over there, there are um, things that women can't do, um, and there are certain restrictions, and I feel like feminists, the the feminist um, group doesn't have a lot of respect for people who make different choices that doesn't encompass, like, the right way of feminism. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I, I would say it's not really restrictions in what women can't do and, and can do. It's more, it's more what they feel more comfortable in. I know a lot of women, for example, um, who like to wear the hijab. And usually the hijab is something that's supposed to portray modesty and um, a form of femininity and respect and I feel like a lot of people sort of link that to oh your male um either your male partner or your father or your brother is making you wear that but it's like I feel like there are a lot of stereotypical ideologies that are so widely broadcasted and that's what causes the lack of um, inclusion of Middle Eastern women in the feminist movement, I feel. It's very interesting that a movement dedicated in bringing people up is actually it's been so, I don't know, toxic to people who don't agree with what they're about. And it's even funnier because it's like Western ideology trying to be forced again on people from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. It's a weird way to see that evolve because we've seen it with um, colonization and everything, um, with the scramble for Africa and then um, the revolutions in Latin America. So it's definitely an upsetting setting view of the world and how we want to enforce ideals on other people. Mm -hmm. It seems like um, the feminist movement here is just about rebelling against um, 
the societal norms Mm -hmm. and people take that to be rebelling against men themselves and then um when you picture a feminist here you picture like some white girl with blue hair like that's the pretty stereotypical like thing and they'll go and they'll tell someone who may be Muslim and just trying to live their life, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you need to stop and you need to, like, rebel because your society is oppressing you. And it's like, hang on, are you saying that because that's what you think? Or have you just not done any research and you don't know anything about these people who you're trying to force to change when their lives are not worse, it's just simply different? Like, that's, that just keeps popping up. It's people in different cultures are not worse off. They're just different. So, like, I know it seems kind of funny, but TikTok has, like, educated me a lot on Middle Eastern women and, like, um, their personal choices to wear the hijab and different types of coverings and, like, um, how they feel about it and how it's, like, a symbol of their own sort of respect for themselves and for other people and it's like I think that's a fantastic thing and I don't think that telling someone what they should or shouldn't do based off of your lack of information about their lives is appropriate at all. I I really like how platforms like TikTok are starting to spread that information and making people more aware of different religions and cultures around them. I feel like that part of globalization has been very effective um, for society's development as a whole. And I think without it, this probably wouldn't have been happening. Um, A lot of things wouldn't have been happening. And us questioning how society works right now um, definitely would not have been happening without global movements um, relating to social media and stuff like that. Definitely. Um, When we look at what you guys are doing at uh, Girls in Politics, that is really revolutionary too. You guys are writing some incredible pieces and Um, you're educating a lot of people. I think the power of information and then combined with social media and the technology we have today is so great at being able to create faster change. I feel like, I feel like, um, if, if, organizations like Girls for Politics had a larger platform, like we're working towards, I feel like it would make so much more of a difference. And it's rare, certainly in in my specific area, it's rare to see people um, taking initiative to spread information, to look into different um, topics, global issues, all of that. I feel like it's important to start spreading that more in in schools rather than just on social media because social media is definitely a lot more westernized, like I said, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't take messages out 
to the entirety of the globe, if you know what I mean. Definitely. Um, I also think a big part of feminism is um, spreading the availability of education for women. Um, I, I think even with different lifestyle changes um, across the world, everyone deserves the right to um, receive education. And I definitely think that is one of the biggest disparities in the world. Um, the most, one of the most important is how um, little to no education someone receives in different areas. And it's it's saddening. Um, Honestly, looking at different stories of girls who don't receive education, it's like one of the most saddening topics I've ever read about. And it's unfortunate that we can't do more than inform ourselves, spread the word, raise awareness, and donate. Like that's what we're limited to unless you have the capabilities of traveling and volunteering. And I wish there were more opportunities to help people like that. Mm -hmm. I also think a large part of feminism historically has been controlling a woman's sexuality. Um, uh, and then recently, there's been a lot of um, talk about things like abortion in the news. And most of these decisions made um, about a woman's right to do whatever with her body is being made by men because there's not a lot of women in politics right now. There's, again, there's no, um, there's a gap between the actual population and the representation of the population that is making the decision that affects the women. Progressive awareness of a normally patriotic um, society. Right, so women normally are not in positions of political power, and this goes for almost all the countries. Um, and only United Nations. Only 24.3% of all national parliamentarians were women as of January 2018. That is a really low number. Yeah. Because women make up 50.1 or 2% of the globe, and to not even have a quarter of representation in government is ridiculous and the fact that governments try to pass laws on women's rights without having women represented is absurd mm -hmm. 
in addition, at the beginning of 2019, there were still 27 countries in which women account for less than 10% of parliamentarians in single or lower houses. And that included all three chambers of the government with like no women at all. All right, so there's still a lot that we need to do to um, have female representation on a global scale. And some countries have made more progress than others. Um, the Council on Foreign Relations created the Women's Power Index, which analyzes the proportion of women serving in governmental roles to provide a visual of the gender gap in um, politics. And so 194 UN countries are rated on a scale of zero to 100, with 100 meaning that at least 50% of the government is shared by women. And the top five countries, this women's power index includes Rwanda, Sweden, and Iceland. Very, very interesting. <laughs> um, one thing though, the highest score, Costa Rica, only has a score of 74. So, what percent of female representation would that be? That would be like 74% of 50% of the population. So that'd be according to whatever the country size was, population size. So to not even be, that's, that's a C. Yeah. That's a C. <laughs> uh, our representation in legislation is a C. So that's pretty awful. Um, Yesterday, we talked about how feminism and cultural um, beliefs and values interplay. What do you guys think that has to do with um, these specific countries being on a higher side of the power index? Um, I mean, when, when we look at cultural beliefs and values a lot of the time that would place women as powerless um and so that would always take effect in politics and in government and it's it's being shown right now what about you yeah I yeah, sorry. I think culture really has affected like the way we think of women being in power. Because like how Aya said, it does make us seem powerless how we are like portrayed in some cultures. So most of the countries with the highest amounts of um, female representation in government are in Nordic regions, Western Europe, and the Americas. So this sort of supports the indication that the cultural view of women in society in certain regions plays a role in their governmental representation. Um, for example, many Middle Eastern countries, such as Iran, um, which happens to have a score of five, on the women's power index um, is culturally known to have a strong patriarchal traditional conservative 
society. And so that sort of leap between uh, male-dominated cultures and societies definitely goes into women not being represented in government and having uh, little no say in the politics of the country. Yeah, and, and not only that, but um, the regions that you just listed, um, Europe, Nordic regions, the Americas, those are those regions are, are associated with um, developed countries, while places like the Middle East and Africa are more undeveloped. And so you see that the sort of um, oppression against women is more prominent in those undeveloped countries and it, it makes you question why is that i think a large part of that is education and again underdeveloped countries if you had to choose between a culturally if you had to choose between a girl or a boy and you could only send one of them to school most cultures would traditionally choose the male because mm-hmm. um they have um speaking from like an asian background males are the ones that will provide for um, the parents after after they've grown and everything, while daughters, when they get married off, they are to provide for their husband's families. Right. And that sort of, sort of role, I think, is also really hard on everybody involved. For men to be seen as the providers of their family and therefore they're the ones who need the education um and the women to be seen as um like housekeepers and who are going to be given off to someone else and that's somebody else's problem eventually i feel like that's really harmful for both sides because on one hand you've got the entire pressure of keeping a family afloat on the um head male and then you've got the complete invalidation of humanity and like being a person as a woman with like just having women reduced to what they can do to serve others so i think it's hard on both i mean at at this like i feel like it would be hard on both if they were exposed to some Western culture, mm-hmm. um, but if if they're so accustomed and so familiarized with the way that they live right now, I feel like they won't really feel as if that's the case and it's it's a negative thing that's happening. I feel like they'll just think that's the only way that life sort of progresses for them. Right. And that kind of, brings up an interesting point that I've been thinking about lately. For some people living in that sort of society and and um, culture is perfectly fine. Like they have no issues, they're satisfied, they're happy, they're um, okay with it and they don't have any reason to change. But for other people who would like to do things outside of the accustomed roles, um, it's not quite the same. So if you were someone, if, if I was a woman with the personality of, oh, I want to take care of my family, 
and I want to um, have a home life and I don't want to go to work or do all those things like that would be fine for her but for me I do not have that kind of personality I want to go and do things and research and I would feel absolutely suffocated if I had to stay at home all the time and only take care of other people and I don't know if that's because I've been exposed to western culture or if that's just my personality but um I think it just depends on the person and I think it's really important to have the mobility in society to be able to go outside of normal gender roles and pursue what you would like to out of life. I completely I completely see your point um, when you say if when you question whether or not it, it that sort of um, point has to do with your personality or if it has to do with you being exposed to westernized culture and it it kind of got me thinking um, Malala um, if you're familiar with her uh, she she wasn't very um, exposed to to westernized culture when she started thinking about how the inequality of education in her region was affecting her and when she started advocating for um, education equality in her area. Um, So I feel like that certain case most definitely has to do with her personality rather than her being exposed to westernized culture. Yeah, um, also I remember reading about her and she would watch this woman on TV who was, I think, a politician or something, and she would fight for women's rights. And, like, being exposed to that really made her, like, think, like, I want to do stuff like that. And, yeah, education. It always, it goes back to education. And I think an important part of what, what Emily was saying earlier is that it's not so much you should be able to do some, uh, you should be doing this, you should be able to, doing that you should be able to do something not what you should do not you should be able to have the mobility to pursue a career or stay at home you know mm-hmm. um in america and westernized culture we're actually seeing a larger flip in um, women being the main breadwinners for the family and more men staying at more stay-at-home dads Mm-hmm. And actually experiencing um, in more developed uh, countries, uh, downward in population for um, uh, more educated women because they do not want to have children. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's been a big thing recently in first world and uh, first world countries where women are not having as much children as before um, because they want to go out and get education and do a career and everything, which is totally fine. So bringing it back to Egypt, quite a lot has changed since this rule. And um, 
Egypt as of 2020 has a score of 14 on the Women's Power Index, and it ranks 105th out of 194th. So in 2015, um, the gender disparities were uh, kind of brought to light in that the literacy rate for women was 65% versus 82% for men. And only 24% of women participated in the labor force versus 79% for men. So, so that would be a big signifier of how um, traditional culture is still practiced over there. I know um, Egyptian culture is very much uh, gender role based. So the woman has to stay at home, do the cooking, cleaning, raising the children. And the man is the one who usually um, earns for the family. Mm -hmm. All right. And um, basically, it was often believed that in Egyptian society that women essentially have a different purpose than men. Um, and it does go a lot unnoticed about how much work women have done historically and traditionally. Um, you don't get paid for childcare or elderly care or keeping the house or anything like that. Um, and I think it's just as important as contributing to the labor force as well, because you are nurturing and providing for the next generation mm -hmm. um, and taking care of those that cannot take care of themselves. Right. I think today in school, we were talking about maternity leave mm -hmm. and how most um, places of work do not give you paid maternity leave. And so you either lose your job or you don't have enough money to provide for the child you're trying to have. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just, there are certain places that will give you um, paid leave if you like make enough um, days to just take a break from work without an explanation and you still get paid. But um, for a woman to want to start a family as she is the sole, um, the only person who can give birth, for her to want to start a family and then have to choose between work and family and not be able to do both, or for her to have to work for um, six or seven years straight before making up enough time to take those paid leave days. I just think that's really unfair, basically. Uh, I mean, to me, it really seems like corporate policies um, don't value um, sort of not family bonding, but fa like family in general. If corporate policies are denying maternity leave to start raising their children properly, adequately, possibly even saving their children from hardship in the future, um, it really shows a lack of 
consideration and and education in that uh, field. I completely agree. I think um, corporate policies that ignore the needs of their workers are often a result of companies that don't know how to manage themselves in order to perform at a high level for a long period of time. Mm. So um, these social constructs that we see often do have religious ties to them and they also create a society in which women are usually oversimplified, reduced to like one or two things. Uh, their roles in life are often marginalized and boiled down to one set of societal obligations and ignoring the fact that they are actually complex individuals who are capable of a large variety of tasks. I think that's sort of why it's important for women to have mobility because when you don't um, allow women or men to move outside of their assigned roles, you are removing their individuality. And one size fits all when that is not the world and that is not women. And so I think the oversimplification of women is really the um, the toxic part of gender roles in that not being able to leave what other people have assigned you to is the issue. I definitely don't think it has religious ties though. I think it definitely has cultural ties. But from an Islamic perspective, I know that Islamic roots um, praised women, valued women, and didn't necessarily have assigned gender roles. I know that the prophet, peace be upon him, would go into the kitchen and help his wife uh, clean and make meals. So the difference between cultural norms and religious norms um, is quite shocking to me, honestly. Um, and I, I like cultural traditions i'm not sure where they stem from but i definitely know they're they're not religious that's kind of that's really interesting because i'm i'm christian and i've been born and raised and so in the different denominations of christianity are different gender roles that are ingrained into the religion so if you're Catholic, you are expected to produce many, many children and take care of those children, and you are not, not expected to work to provide for your children. That's the father's job. You are also not allowed to get divorced, and any sort of um, it's biased towards women. So if the woman is caught um, cheating, then she will likely be ostracized from the congregation. Whereas if the man is caught cheating or doing something else, then it's 
there's almost nothing that happens. And it's similar in Baptist um, denominations in that um, the women are expected to have lots of children, to take care of them, to stay at home. I know many um, Baptists today will homeschool their children. And so the father will go to work and the woman will stay home and homeschool her kids. And they often have five plus children. And so for Christianity in the modern American sense of Christianity, um, gender roles are honestly one of the most prevalent things I see because not a lot of Christians actually follow what the Bible says. So what they do follow are the gender roles and the ostracization of outsiders. That's at least what I see. Right. And we're not we're not specifying like one religion or like any specific denomination of that religion. We're just saying that sometimes historically we can see trends of certain religions, certain religious beliefs shaping the cultural view of women. Definitely, yeah, definitely. And I feel like as times progress certain aspects from different religions are practiced more than others and it seems um it seems sometimes they're good practices and sometimes they're bad practices and i'm not sure how people differentiate um bad and good practices and how they bring them forward in history yeah a big part of religion is just interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone has their own different interpretation of sacred texts that they follow. So um, time, time will tell what we will see in those religions um, in accordance to the gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going back to women um, and feminism, Usually a country's economic development and their progressiveness in terms of female representation is not very definite. Some countries with the highest ratio of women in governmental power also have some of the highest GDPs. So um, we're looking at Germany, who is the fourth highest GDP on the globe in their 30th out of 194. Um, and then France is 60th on the power index um, and has the seventh highest GDP. So it's definitely not correlated specifically with how developed a country is, not definitely, which is really interesting to me. Um, and I think it goes again back to culture and what a society um, values at most. Because we see um, places like before, uh, I believe it was Rwanda mm-hmm. that was up there. Yep. They, his, historically, they had a matriarchal society mm-hmm. and women would lead the tribes and everything. So it's very clear to see how they, even though they're not as developed as westernized countries, um, would have a higher female representation and power. Mm-hmm. And that's also contrasting with the fact that the three countries with the highest GDPs Mm -hmm. have 
some of the lowest scores. So Japan, um, who is third for highest GDP, ranks 141st out of 194. China, who is second, um, ranks 150th. And the U.S., who is first, ranks 128th. So all three of those developed countries have the highest GDPs and quite low female representation. So there are, I think, quite a few nuances that come with um, female representation in government and how that affects the um, overall economic standing in terms of policy and um, opinion. Um, but I just think it's interesting how there's a general trend, but then it gets to a point where it's like, no, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so interesting because it's often stereotypes that women in countries that are less developed have less of a lifestyle and that they are more restricted, they don't have as much power. But when we actually look at the research and everything, it's not quite as linear as one might think it is. There are differences in every country and there's no, there's no one size fits all. You cannot generalize um, something like that to every country because there's so much that goes into it and there's differences everywhere. Yeah, it's a, it's a very philosophical topic that I don't think anyone's going to completely comprehend anytime soon. In the past century, the advocacy for women's rights and inequality has drastically increased from people like Susan B. Anthony and the women's suffrage movement to the feminist movement in the 1960s and 70s, and then even up to today for equal pay of 2010. Mm -hmm. Do you guys think that we will ever be 100% equal? Um, I mean, I'd like to think that we will be eventually, but I definitely know if, if that does end up happening, it'll take a very, very, very long time. And that's just based on how slowly the women's rights movement has progressed and how long it's taken women to even start stepping out of their boundaries and start advocating for themselves. Right. Yeah, I think we've come a long way, but we still have a really long way to go. Um, I think that there's probably a time in the future where women will be um, almost equally represented. But I think that even if the wage gap completely disappears and um, there are no restrictions on gender roles, I think that there would probably still be some inequality in that not as many women want to become politicians. Hmm. 
and um, not as many women will like devote their lives to the workforce. You know, like I think that more women will want to be stay-at-home moms than men will want to be stay-at-home dads. Like, just because there's a maternal instinct and some women may find it comfortable, whereas some men haven't really thought about it all that much because it was never part of their life plan. Mm -hmm. So I think even if we basically reach equality and there's no real issue anymore, I think that there will still be a slightly smaller number of women in politics and the workforce than men. Which one? I know. definitely... That's good. I definitely agree. I feel like um, traditions are, are still valued and they'll still be valued. Um, and so that comes into play with what you just said. Yeah, I feel like these stereotypes have just been like built into our minds and like we can't get rid of them or at least quickly. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that um, anywhere in the world, there will not be, I would like to think there'd be 100%, but I don't think there is going to be 100% equality. So despite the wave of female empowerment, which gained traction with the support of social media and the internet, the US seems to fall behind many other country when it comes to female representation, both in the political world and the corporate world. So even though women compose over half the college educated workforce, as one moves up the hierarchy of power, in various fields, the ratio of women in power decreases. So if we take a look at the financial industry, for example, in this field, women constitute 61% of the workforce um, in accountants and auditors, 53% of financial managers, 37% of analysts, and yet only 12.5% of the chief financial officers of major Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, the political field is also alarmingly disproportionate. Um, according to the Center for American Progress, as of January 2019, women constitute only 24% of the House of Representatives and 23% of the Senate. So um, these numbers become much smaller when discussing minorities, as women of color only represent 9% of Congress. Nine very low <laughs> very very low have you guys seen those photos of pictures of government where all the men are removed and only the women are left or all of the um, white people are removed and only people of color are left because those powerful stuff they they scare me yeah. you'll see a photo of 25 people and two will be left. And it doesn't matter whether you were looking for women or people of color. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ah. It's, yeah, no, I, I can imagine how insane that would be. I haven't seen them, but I'll definitely look it up. 
I definitely think there's a ceiling kind of when you are an ambitious individual and you start climbing there are factors of your identity such as like your gender so as a woman or your race if you're a person of color or your sexuality if you're lgbtq that prevent you from moving up on any power um, system so whether that's if you're into politics and you want to move up politically or if you're just like trying to work and move up that and become um like an executive or uh like in the financial a chief financial officer there are so many barriers because of that identity and you're not as protected from that as a lot of people might think and i i feel like as time progresses um, that will definitely start to change. Uh, I haven't really seen the LGBTQ community very prominent in politics, let's say, but women of color um, and women of ethnic backgrounds weren't usually in the political spotlight, but I see more and more of them coming into that spotlight. And I feel like that will start to happen with, with the LGBTQ community and definitely more women um, with ethnic backgrounds. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you can go. Yeah, um, I feel like seeing more and more women of like color and like of the LGBTQ, like just coming into politics gives others confidence to come in. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's like a um, chain reaction and Absolutely, there have been um, there has been a surge of women and people of color coming into politics. Um, in November of 2018, a record of at least 125 women were elected to Congress, and for the first time in American history, there are over 2,000 women serving in state legislatures across the country, which is amazing. We're making progress, most definitely. And um, I absolutely agree. Once one person um, shows others that, hey, you can do it, representation is super important. It gives other people the courage to um, actively pursue it as well. So um, I think that as we make progress, we'll see more and more um, representation of minorities come into Congress. And hopefully that will start to even out the inequality. Right. And I think that's a great reason why organizations like yours, Girls in Politics, you guys are doing some great work in promoting the spread of information in order to make these changes. Mm -hmm. And then as long as we have people that want to do that, change is going to happen. Yeah, definitely. I feel like activism is contagious. Um, Spreading information, especially on social media, is also contagious. You may post one thing on your story and it'll it'll spread to hundreds of people and that itself is a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So despite all of the movements in women in politics and everything. Um, There are still a lot of harmful gender stereotypes that hold women back uh, and make it easier for them to be overlooked for leadership positions. 
Um, women are more likely to be seen as communal individuals um, who are friendly and caring, whereas men are more likely to be seen as assertive and willing to take charge. And so that will, that could either cause someone to overlook a woman for the position or cause severe backlash mm -hmm. against a woman once she has taken a sort of position. Um, I think we see that quite often today where um, a woman will be vocal and assertive and say exactly what she wants and have a full, really um, present force there and she will just get bashed on. Mm -hmm. by everyone for everything they can think of, including the fact that either women aren't supposed to be assertive and they're supposed to be um, just compliant or that when a woman is assertive, she's being rude or... I've seen emotional thrown in a lot. Yes. Um, if you're ever like saying, hey, we need to do this, do this, I've seen my school I've seen um, girls who are in leadership positions in clubs and they start going off about something that they're really passionate about mm -hmm. and some guys like oh stop being so emotional just cut right through it and it's interesting how in the beginning these values emotional caring all of this stuff were attributed uh, as good things because women were nurturing children um, that later when we see them used as ways to govern people in politics as we see women in leadership expressing them they're now negative so it's very interesting and very contradictory so in general um, these gender stereotypes neglect the fact that people um, both men and women are complex and they exhibit a large and wide range of character traits and personalities. So what is next for girls in politics? What is next? Well, we are going to continue publishing articles written by our political writers. Um, definitely continue to interview more and more um, experts who have um, expertise and knowledge in the field of of politics specifically how women involve themselves in politics um trying to explore different regions and politics um in different regions of the world just sort of looking at different perspectives and and laying that out for our, our followers on on instagram Awesome, awesome. And how um, how do people find your Instagram or your website? I mean, as of now, we do have a, a relatively small platform that we are continue to continuing to grow. Um, but from the feedback that we've seen, um, close friends and and followers 
Uh, it's informative. A lot of the information that I see other um, political writers publishing, I haven't necessarily heard of on mainstream media. So it does inform me a lot as well. Awesome. It was so great to have you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Thank you for having us. You guys, yeah. Dear Pharaoh Hatsafoot, Words cannot describe how mesmerized we are by your incredible act of governance and care for the common people. When we look back at history, there are many human performances that we deeply regret, but forgetting you is something that affected 3,500 plus years of what could have been included more female empowerment. During your reign, Egypt was at its prime. You built temples, master trade, and most importantly, you kept your people safe. But until 1902, we were told to believe that the acts that brought prosperity to Egyptian land were those of a man. Women are seen as kind and gentle and deemed unfit to be a leader because true leaders are harsh and assertive. But because of you, we know that a leader can simultaneously be compassionate and lead a prosperous nation. Now that we've discovered you, the percentage of women holding powerful positions have increased. However, there is still a disproportionate ratio of women in high positions if compared to men. Some only want to see our pretty faces only want to see us confined to the home. Some want us cast in the shadow of men who are our equals. Don't they know that we have the power to rule the way that you did? Don't they see that we have the power to be revolutionaries, to change the world the way you did? We still struggle, but times change. Times will change. Now that we know of your history, society can move forward. We can progress into a community where power is equally distributed, despite gender. This has been Yvonne Liu and Emily Lohman. We want to give a special thanks to our wonderful writers, editors, and social media teams. Join us next time for an episode on ancient China where we will explore Asian stereotypes and the bamboo ceiling. Make sure to check out Girls for Politics. And you can find us on all platforms at Dear Dead People, the podcast. See you next time.